Tēnā koutou no mai, hi to mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tang. Today, exclusive polling shows voters are increasingly unhappy with the government's performance. We'll show you which parties voters are turning to instead. Then, Foreign Minister Nanaia Mahuta in the Middle East. Is New Zealand doing enough to rescue our allies from Afghanistan? Even when the emergency evacuation stopped, our people were still continuing to process applications that were eligible during that period of time. And I'm in Papakura to visit the front lines of the COVID-19 response. We're living in areas that are overcrowded, there's high levels of deprivation and poverty, you know, and there's just not those supports. We will have that story for you soon. But first, with Auckland set to open its borders next month, Labour has once again found itself at odds with its traditional support party. The Greens say New Zealand should continue to pursue elimination outside of Auckland and that moving Auckland to level three, when the government did, was the wrong decision. Green Party co-leader Marama Davidson is with us this morning. Tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A. Ata Maria Jack, kia ora, thanks for having me. Marama, why don't you want Auckland's borders lifted? Well, until we have equitably high vaccination rates for Māori, and until we have regional health systems that are prepared, and until we have properly tested and refined the traffic light system, then it is actually unsafe for regional communities, for Māori communities and other groups for us to rush ahead um, while we haven't got that sorted. Why is it rushing ahead? We have all had months now to go and get vaccinated. And again, don't forget Māori having a much younger demographic, much younger population. A majority of our population started well behind. Our Māori expertise in COVID, our Māori health providers should have been at the table from the very start to enable us to properly target those equities that are long-standing with Māori communities. Um, and that is why we are seeing the inequity in the way that the rollout for vaccinations has happened and in the rate of Māori vaccination rates. So younger population and we didn't prioritise Māori expertise to lead the vaccination programmes. Oh, okay, but over the last you know, month or so we have seen tens of millions of dollars going direct to Māori health providers all around Aotearoa. I mean, Māori in Northland, which you know, is a, is a, has a large Māori community, um, were prioritised for the vaccine rollout. So, so is there anyone left in New Zealand who doesn't know there is a pandemic and doesn't know that getting vaccinated is critical for our response? So again, Jack, I think it's really important to acknowledge that we can't try and close and build the distrust and the mistrust that Māori have faced uh, when it's engaging with primary health um, organisations, government agencies. There has historically been a long period of mistrust right from colonisation and to expect to close that in even a couple of years while you haven't properly targeted and prioritised Māori leadership to do this work, we should not be surprised that we are having to play catch up, um, including with Māori vaccination rates. There will be people watching this who say we are more than 20 months into this pandemic, if Māori are behind in vaccination rates, actually it is time for Māori to take some personal responsibility in protecting their communities. What is your response to that? It is time, and we have already seen the evidence very clearly, 
that our government agencies, our health departments take some responsibility for the long-standing systemic racism that has very clearly been acknowledged by government itself. The Waitangi Tribunal have done a deep dive into those long-standing um, discriminations and racism that have existed at every part of our public health agencies. So that is also part of taking responsibility to increase the trust that Māori communities, whether that comes down to when a Māori person presents and visits their health provider, their doctor, more often than not, they are not afforded the same health care or the same diagnosis as the rate of non-Māori. That is clear systemic discrimination and that is the work that is confronting us all in the face right now. How long would you wait? Look, our independent COVID experts and our Māori health experts have been clear we can see Māori vaccination rates mm. increasing, Jack. They are not plateauing out. Mm. They actually are increasing, but at a slightly slower rate. This shows that making sure that we get not just the resource, not just the funding of the millions, Jack, but also the data and the information directly to Māori health providers so that they can continue to do that work. We, Jack, you're saying we've been doing this for coming up to two years. We have not tested the traffic light system. We do not know whether that's going to be able to stabilise or even bring down positive COVID cases. Um, also, we have not urgently prioritised our regional public health systems. Mairawene Hospital in the Hokianga that mm. you referred to this morning does not have ICU capacity. We can urgently get that work, get those resources out to where they need to get. We're not talking six months, Jack. Um, the independent experts have told us just some leadership for even some few more weeks while we get vaccination rates up, while we do that work for our health systems. And, you know, this is not just about the summer, Jack. Um, this is about the long-term solutions, the long-term collective well-being. I, my family live in Auckland. Mm. We go to Hokianga every year for the first time in 10 years. We are choosing to not go back to Hokianga. I am in touch with Rawene Hauwara Health every day. They're very clear they cannot do with any extra threat yeah. of any more pressure on the health system. When I, the first question I asked you in this interview was when Auckland should open its borders and you said not until Māori achieve equity on the vaccination rollout. Now it's clear that that isn't just a case of a few more weeks. On the current trajectory we are looking at months. It could be halfway through next year, it could be never that we achieve equity for Māori vaccination rates? I'm going to push back on never, because again, Jack, that assumes that we cannot do the access work, for example. Access is also a big mm. part of the lower vaccination rates. So if you're talking about Māori in the regions, oh my goodness, in Auckland I've got several any number of local nearby testing and vaccination sites. In the regions, access is a massive issue. I know that my uncle and aunties save up their grocery shop to go once each week because of the very little petrol or transport that they've got to be able to spend that on. So access, the nearest from Waimamaku to Rawene, is a big long drive. Access is also where we can see the we could accelerate the increase in vaccination rates mm. if we put everything into access and trust and local provider issues. Are you okay with fully vaccinated negative testing New Zealanders not being able to reunite for Christmas? No I'm not and actually we would want to see a far more compassionate approach to travel exemptions to people who should be able to travel. You know and I have 
the utmost compassion, and I think you're still in Auckland, Jack. How's your hair looking? Um, I have the utmost compassion for our Aucklanders, my own kids, for example, who have not left their South Auckland neighbourhood for many, many months. And I, and I really understand that need um, to be able to get out and about. Auckland is a big region. Mm. Uh, we've got bushes and beaches and any number of activities, but also I would absolutely want to see a fairer, compassionate approach to perhaps visiting isolated Komatua, mm. um, reconnecting family who really need to have, you know, those who have high personal or health needs. We would absolutely want to prioritise travel exemptions for those people. But, but fully vaccinated Aucklanders, to be clear, could not travel to other parts of Aotearoa to visit their whānau this Christmas unless it was for a compassionate reason. Not right reason. now. If not right now, not just for this summer, Jack. This is about the rest of the summers that we've got for decades to come. And asking those to stay put, I, my entire household too is fully vaccinated, but we still do not want to add any further possible threat at all to our rawane and our hukianga health systems. This mm. is just this summer, Jack. We need to have a long-term approach to the safety of everyone. And the regions, Jack, have asked us to consider this. Hokianga, Hone, East Coast, my Whakapapa homelands that I have every right to go back to have asked us to just hold on while they continue to do the work. When would you open New Zealand's border to Kiwis overseas who, once again, are fully vaccinated and negative tested and want to return home? And again, it would depend on what is currently happening in those particular countries at the time. What are their positive cases looking like? Um, with the right testing uh, processes, both at their end and at our gates, mm. um, with, again, um, really high uh, vaccination um, proof and before you come in, I think I'm really, we're really open to considering that, especially, Jack, especially for, you know, we were strong advocates for being able to unite um, those about to have a baby, partners mm. about to have a baby who were stuck on different sides of the of the Pacific ditch. You know, all of those things I think we can absolutely take a far more considerate approach on. So would you let Kiwis come back from Australia and self-isolate at home starting this weekend? With, with those proper safety precautions in mm. place, Jack, we are seeing, and I'm saying this, and I know you went to Papakura as well, again in my South Auckland community, I am really concerned about our local cases and the ability for our domestic cases to spread. With the right tests and precautions, mm. I think we can look to reuniting um, New Zealanders, Kiwis overseas. Marama, you're the Minister for Ending Homelessness. How have homeless communities in Tamaki, Makoto, Auckland changed during this lockdown? It's been really hard, actually, and I want to mihi to the providers, our Māori community, uh, Pacifica-led providers who have been just at the front lines, particularly through COVID. They have pushed hard and advocated for things like more food um, distribution, making sure that people have access to what they need, more income, and it, is been, it has been those providers at the forefront of doing that work. The work for COVID and homelessness in Tamika Makoto has been so challenging that they have had to uh, understandably focus their efforts 
on that immediate work, while that has meant um, some of our broader government work has been put on a slower back burner for now. Um, while they focus on the urgent crisis, and they've been outstanding, um, it has been quite challenging uh, to make sure that those who are right at the forefront of those toughest impacts, not having a yeah. quality, healthy home or enough income for dignity, um, they've been providing support to them, and we have been really We've understood how important it has been to directly support those providers to do that work through COVID. You announced earlier in the week $6 million to spend on initiatives that partner with local organisations to combat homelessness. That's out of a $16 million pool that's being distributed across three years. Is that going to make a dent? It's not the only work that is happening in the area of homelessness. Um, that local innovation partnership fund is what it is. And it is about local organisations partnering to lead the best solutions to addressing and preventing homelessness. So, for example, we've previously seen Whangarei and Rotorua um, having a focus on rangatahi and homelessness or having a focus on reconnecting people to whakapapa and tikanga to help with that work um, in providing the wraparound support. Uh, the $6 million this round, I'm really encouraging more people, more organisations mm. to put up proposals in that sort of vein. Jack, it's part of a broader homelessness action plan, which was $300 million mm. to be able to support 10,000 people. And still, Jack, I know that more is needed and faster. And that's the green ministerial voice that I'm really proud of bringing over the past year, making sure that I am prioritising those community and grassroots voices right at our yeah. decision-making table. I mean, it's a ministerial voice, but it's a ministerial voice outside of Cabinet and of course your co-leader James Shaw has had a similar experience with the climate change portfolio. Mm -hmm. Is Labor committing enough money and is Labor giving you enough to actually affect the, the change that you came to politics to, to, to affect? And that we agreed to in our what we call is the cooperation agreement which made it clear James and I as ministers um, get to be able to work with our Labour minister colleagues mm. to do stuff, to get stuff done, while also protecting my independent role as the Green Party of Aotearoa and having an independent voice. So, for example, even while I am an associate homelessness mm. minister, I also, as a co-leader, have been very, very clear right now, especially in Tamaki Makaurau, you should come out to Ranwick Park in Manurewa one day, Jack. There are people being absolutely ripped off by the amount of rent they are paying for the crappy quality homes that they are living in. I want to see as a co-leader in the urgency a rent freeze, more rent controls for example, to really take some of the pressure off um, our people who are roughing it the most and that is alongside mm. the massive increase in public and affordable housing that we absolutely need to see that this government is doing as well. Alright, thank you for your time, we appreciate it. That is Green Party co-leader Marama Davidson. As for the hair, I've got a cowlick, a widow's peak and the double crown, the trifecta, baby. Coming up, Nanaya Mahuta heads overseas for the first time as foreign minister. Hoki mai we welcome back to Q&A. Despite having been in the job for more than a year, the foreign minister is only now on her first overseas trip as COVID-19 disrupts international diplomacy. One News political editor Mikey Sherman is travelling with Nanaya Mahuta. The pair sat down in Dubai and Mikey began by asking if New Zealand is doing enough to get our allies out of Afghanistan. 
Yes, we are, and we're doing as much as we can given the challenging circumstances on the ground and also the challenge that we have in order to facilitate those who are eligible to come back to New Zealand. Not to sound crude, but do we owe them? Well, we set some very specific criteria uh, between the 16th of August to the 26th of August to recognise uh, that those who were helping in the reconstruction efforts uh, should have a, an ability to come back uh, to New Zealand because they helped us and in their time of need we wanted to ensure that we can help them. And that's why that criteria was established. So is that a yes, we owe them? Well, look, these people helped us when uh, we were uh, doing, undertaking reconstruction work in Bamiyan. Uh, they provided uh, translation services and other supports, ancillary supports to our team that was on the ground at the time. And given the uh, challenges uh, more recently around uh, forces moving out, it became apparent uh, to the New Zealand government uh, that we needed uh, to help those who helped us in their time of need. Why then did we introduce a cut-off date for the visa, which on the face of it seems heartless? Yeah, that's a really good question and we have to remember that the time uh, period which we applied to the, those special uh, criteria, which the Prime Minister announced on the 16th of August, uh, was in response to an emergency evacuation effort that we were undertaking with other Allied forces during a very closed period of time and that's why there was a, a cut-off period. And, you know, well, as we moved through that emergency evacuation, it became glaringly apparent that there were challenges on the ground, uh, that there were imminent threats, and we couldn't compromise the security of those that we had sent in to bring people back in again. That's why there was a closed period for which that, uh, those criteria applied. Could that now be extended, though, with the dust settling, but the problems remaining? Oh, look, I'm not sure whether that achieves uh, the initial intent, which was to uh, open, up the, open up the criteria sufficient that we were recognising that people did help us and we could uh, try and ensure that we were bringing those who helped us back uh, to New Zealand. That was the first wave of support, and we are still working on the, on the challenge of bringing many of those who are eligible, nationals, permanent residents and visa holders, back to New Zealand. But what does timing have to do with helping those who, you agree, helped us and who we essentially are indebted to. Well, that's who the criteria will apply to. And, and that's why there are a number of visa holders there that we are still working with to be able to bring them back to New Zealand. Were we sluggish in our response? Look, no, we weren't. In fact, in New Zealand, we had across a number of ministries around about, a, a, at its peak, 150-odd uh, people, staff deployed specifically to help during that emergency evacuation period. And even when that period stopped, there was ongoing commitment both with across New Zealand uh, government departments as well as consular services out on the field to be able to facilitate uh, people to come back to New Zealand, those who were eligible. But it took us weeks to announce a special envoy and weeks are crucial when we're dealing with a situation like Afghanistan, surely? Well, people shouldn't be under any shadow of a doubt that we never stopped helping. Even when the emergency evacuation stopped, our people were still continuing to process applications that were eligible during that period of time, help facilitate people to be able to come back. And actually, those who had registered on the Safe Travel website, we were still providing regular updates and supports to people who were very stressed at the time. And we are continuing to help. The appointment of a special rep 
representative enables us to work with other special representatives who were retasked for this purpose uh, and uh, work on our, our plan uh, to bring people back. Why did it take so long to make that appointment though? Look, the special representative appointment has, uh, is an enhancement to the work that we are uh, continuing to undertake to bring people But it is a crucial lead role. It is a crucial lead role and it enhances the role that we're currently, uh, that we continue to undertake. Again, we have New staff in New Zealand working across agencies to facilitate people to come back. We have consular services who are working uh, with others uh, to bring people back and appointing a special representative is another, is another enhancement to that strategy. From here in Dubai you head to Qatar. How have they helped our efforts? Yeah, look, uh, we must acknowledge and thank Qatar uh, for uh, their help uh, in terms of being able to transfer people uh, back. Uh, and it gives uh, me an opportunity again to get a sense of what's happening on the ground. Will you be meeting with any of the families who have fled Afghanistan and who are potentially making their way to New Zealand while in Qatar? I'm unlikely to be meeting with any specific case. It's more at an operational level that those conversations will take place. The conversations I will be having will be at a more strategic level to understand uh, the nature of the plan that we're giving effect to, but also uh, the arrangements that we have specifically uh, with Qatar and in particular they have been helpful in being able to fly people back to New Zealand. Are you wanting to meet with those families though? Look, I don't think it would be wise for me as a minister to get involved in any one particular case. There is a process for that to be undertaken. There is support through consular services so that those uh, who are eligible have access to good advisory services about what uh, support we can offer. Back here in Dubai now and Māori were received extraordinarily well by the Emirati, including members of the royal family. Why is that? I think because there are a lot of uh, things that Māori have in common with the Emirati. Uh, firstly, there's a strong sense of cultural connection, just in the way that whakapapa um, and connections kind of flow right through to how uh, culture uh, expresses itself. And that is true when you see the Emirati and Māori engaging with one another. Another area, and look, we're at a World Expo, is in the area of business. The Emirati have a very intergenerational outlook on the way in which they think about uh, how they contribute to the long outcomes, the intergenerational outcomes of their people, uh, their communities, their whānau, similar to Māori. Then the other thing is relationships really matter. That underscores the way in which Māori do business, that underscores the way in which the Emirati uh, do business as well. So there's a lot of synergies. Has much of that Māori X factor benefited you as a wahine Māori foreign affairs minister? Look, I think it's, it, uh, it only serves to enhance the point of difference that I bring to the role as a Minister of Foreign Affairs in the way in which I can uh, initiate relationships to the benefit of Māori, of course, and to New Zealand, absolutely. And just finally, what, what are the current numbers in terms of the situation in Afghanistan? Yeah, look, we have been able to support uh, 769 uh, visa holders to get out of Afghanistan. Uh, and in terms of coming back to New Zealand, 635 
Uh, and just yesterday, you and I were talking about the numbers, and I mentioned 500, 580. So, you know, that's a jump again. It's moving in the right direction. We're increasing the numbers that are, are coming back to New Zealand. People working really hard in New Zealand and across our consular services to make sure that we are putting our, our what do they call it, pedal to the metal uh, and helping these people who are desperate to come back. That is Foreign Minister Nanaia Mahuta speaking to One News political reporter Mikey Sherman. Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can email us, Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. Coming up, we have exclusive new polling that shows more Labour voters are losing confidence in the government. But who are those voters supporting instead? The answer might surprise you. Kia ora te Welcome back. Unemployment's way down, competition for workers is massive and wages are finally increasing. In the lead up to Christmas, retailers, couriers and trucking companies are seriously worried they won't be able to deliver their services because of a lack of staff. Here's reporter Fina Owen. Skilled construction workers have never been in such hot demand. But now, companies are not only competing with each other to attract workers, Australia's construction sector is going all out to poach Kiwi talent. I've heard stories of sort of $40, $50 an hour for hammer hands. Um, to buy a house over there, it's, it's still considerably cheaper. So my big concern over the next two years is whether we'll start to see some of those younger uh, some of the younger talent leaving to head to Australia. It's almost impossible to get staff. Only a year ago I could put an ad out and within two days have 20 odd applications. Now I'm lucky to get one or two in a month. for employers who've also copped the financial setbacks of the pandemic. But great for workers. As our employment rate goes, New Zealand is up there. The employment rate of 68.8% puts us at third among OECD countries, behind only the Netherlands and Iceland. We saw in October um, the highest average salary on site um, ever. It was a record. It reached $67,000. Uh, on top of that, employers are offering things like more flexibility, uh, more time at home with their families um, to really, really try and attract the right talent. The biggest demand for workers are in trades and services, healthcare and IT. In some sectors like construction and transport, the staff shortage is causing delays in delivery of projects and goods. Truck drivers, really, really tough to find at the moment. I still think that we can, we can create a lot of those jobs by training people who may currently be unemployed or potentially looking to, to upskill. And I think the government could probably do better in that space in terms of training those people, upskilling them, getting them a class one licence and then potentially get them into truck driving where they can make really good money. Early last year when we entered the first lockdown, labour surveys revealed that women were leaving the workforce. 18 months later, it's a different story. Employment growth this quarter has been strong across the board, um, but one interesting point is that it's been especially strong for women, where we saw the highest quarterly increase ever. New Zealand's leading online job finder, Seek, reports 5 million visitors to its site last month. TradeMe has noticed more movement between jobs. We've seen overseas things like the Great Resignation, 
um, which is which could be coming to New Zealand. You know, all the indicators are there. People thinking about satisfaction levels in, uh, of their current role during uh, lockdown. It's never been a better time to, to be a job hunter. Fina Owen reporting there. Coming up, a young doctor who caught COVID-19 from his patients and ended up in hospital. And I join his colleagues in Tamaki Makoto as they make house visits to people with COVID-19. The startling realities of the virus as it sweeps through Papakura. Kia ora koutou, welcome back. At last year's election, one in every two voters supported Labour, an unprecedented result in the MMP age. But this year has been a difficult one for the government. Auckland has been in lockdown for more than three months and the government has faced intensifying criticism for its management of COVID-19. Since the 2020 election, Labour has been the largest party in every single poll. And often by a huge margin. But what goes up must eventually come down. Labour's been declining since the election, but National's still not making a lot of headway. On Monday's One News Colmar Brunton poll, Labour saw its party support fall 2%. Labour's still easily clear of National, and on these numbers could comfortably form a government with the Greens. But there is clearly a trend. Labour's support has fallen in every One News Colmar Brunton poll since the election. National is trending up, just, while ACT has enjoyed a massive surge in support. Now, we wanted to dig into the numbers a little bit more. So Q&A asked Colmar Brunton for some exclusive polling to get a better sense of how voters are assessing the government's performance. Of all voters, 14% say Labor's performance in government has exceeded expectations. 41% say the government has met expectations. But the same number, 41%, say the government has performed worse than expected. Of people who voted for Labour, 21% think the government is doing better than expected. 54% say the government's performing as they expected. 22% say the Labour government is doing worse. So how does that sentiment translate into party support? Colmar Brunton has identified some key shifts. Of voters who supported Labour last year, only 70% say they're sure they would support Labour now. 10% say they'd support National. 5% say they would support ACT. And just 3.5% say they'd vote for the Greens, who of course Labour could likely rely on to help form a government. National's picked up support from Labour, but it's also lost voters. 76% of voters who supported National last year are sure they would support National now. ACT is the main beneficiary, picking up 16% of former national voters. Now, we haven't had a panel on Q&A since before Auckland's lockdown. Three months without the horse race. So to unpack the numbers for us this morning, we will bring in our panel. Liam here is a Palmerston North lawyer and member of the National Party, and Sue Maroney is a former Labour MP and the CEO of Community Law Aotearoa. Kia ora kōrua. thank you for being with us this morning. Sue, I will start with you. As a former MP, if you were in government, would these numbers make you worry? I wouldn't be alarmed about them. Um, there's clearly no room for complacency. But I think in the context, there's, there's two reasons why I wouldn't be alarmed about it. First of all, this is coming off an unprecedented result, um, what you might call a king tide that came in for Labour in 2020. And so you can expect that there were people who voted Labour 
in 2020 who have never voted Labor in their lives. And so they are going to, at some point, revert to um, perhaps their previous voting patterns. That's to be expected. But also, um, this poll was taken right at the tail end of a very difficult and prolonged lockdown, not only in Auckland, but also in Waikato. Now, that's 40, about 40%, more than 40% of the population uh, suffering at the time that this poll was being taken. So I think in that context, actually, Labor um, could actually feel that they've done a reasonable job in the circumstances. The party that should be really worried about these results, in my view, is the National Party, because in those circumstances, they've really failed to get traction. We'll get to the National Party in just a moment. Liam, what do you think of these numbers? What do they tell us about how voters are viewing the Labour government's performance? Well, well I think Sue's uh, essential point is correct. That, you know, it was the high tide uh, in, the, in the election last year. And, of course, there's going to be a reversion to the mean. The idea that, um, that Labour and the Greens together, you know, the, the left would be pulling 60% or, or more is, is, is not really founded. Um, the, um, but what I, th what I think uh, is more interesting to me is that you have 41% of the country sort of th thinking the government's doing worse than they expected. You have 41% saying they're doing about as, as well as they expected. Um, but, you know, some of that 41% in that second group will have had low expectations. You know, the government's doing about as well as I expected it to do, but I'm probably not going to vote for the government. And so what I think that shows is that, um, that it is a reversion to the mean, but the reversion to the mean is that their support for Labour is a lot softer than it was last year. Um, National hasn't done that well, but the reality is is that, uh, you know, it's much more competitive than it was. And uh, it's used the Prime Minister's phrase, uh, the, the direction of travel is all in the wrong direction for the government. So it wouldn't take much now for it to become a very, very tight uh, contest all of a sudden. Mm. So elimination for COVID-19 management was a hugely popular strategy with the voting populace. Uh, put aside the, the health considerations for one moment, put aside the economic considerations. From a political perspective, was it a mistake to move away from elimination when the government did? I think it was just the reality that the government's been dealing with um, because there has been the issue of non-compliance which is, is showing its face this time around and we didn't necessarily see that last year. So they have been dealing with the reality. They've been taking the public health advice but also having to recognise where people are at on, on the issue of these continuing uh, using lockdown as the measurement. So next year is going to be very interesting because they're moving away from being managing uh, managing this process through lockdowns to managing it with vaccination rates. And I think the other thing that's important to remember in this context is that the, the final measure that we should be looking at all the time about the government performance in this area is actually the number of deaths that we have. And we compare very favourably internationally on that front. And I think that's the final measure. That's the reason we're trying to actually manage COVID-19 is because it kills people. But in New Zealand, it has killed far fewer people per head of population than anywhere else in the OECD. So to what extent will polling pressures be influencing the government's decision makings as we move into the traffic light framework? Well, I think the, the figures that you've presented here this morning show what the conventional wisdom has been in politics for a long time, is that in the first year post-election, 
the situation's quite fluid with voters, and you can see that in those polling numbers, that people aren't having to make a decision anytime soon about how they're actually going to use their vote. And so they will, they will search around and, and have varying opinions in the lead-up to the election. When the numbers really start consolidating is in that final year of an election when people are starting to think how they're actually going to cast their vote. So I think that um, the government will be looking at these numbers through that lens. Liam, what do you think? To what extent will polling pressures and the government's awareness that perhaps support is slipping from those astronomic highs be influencing its decision-making when it comes to our COVID-19 strategy? Oh, I think it certainly will. I mean, I think it has already. And, uh, you know, the, the point is, is that uh, however inevitable the move away for, from elimination was, it wasn't handled all that well from a political matter. I mean, the, 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 the messaging was very confusing. Uh, the government, for a while, pretended that it wasn't really moving away from elimination at all. And so what, what it's done is it's, it's presented the public with a series of what seemed like half measures. And it's a bit, it's a bit like the, the joker used to live next door to us, and he had a, a special hay rake. Uh, that could Ted Hay and it could Winrow Hay, but it couldn't do either particularly well. And so it, was, uh, it just seemed like an unsatisfactory tool. And in the same way, the government's uh, sort of indecisive move away from elimination, it's confusing uh, new system or it's confusing mishmash of systems for regulating our behaviour, has just contributed to this air of, uh, of, of dissatisfaction that we're seeing. Um, now, if the government is, um, can be decisive uh, in its response to polling uh, now, then it, will, uh, it, it may right the ship. Uh, but the reality is, is that if, it, if it's reactive to polling and its reaction is to take a series of compromises and half measures, it's, it's likely to just increase frustration and continue to erode support. Yeah, yeah. What do you think about that, Sue? What does the government need to do to try and shore up its support in the next few months, which are, which are likely to be critical in the overall COVID-19 response? Well, I don't agree with the assessment that there's a writing of the ship that needs to actually occur, um, because I think what these, these figures do tell us is that, by and large, the government is heading down the right track. And certainly the, the death rate um, due to COVID-19 tells us also that the government is heading down the right track. Next year, what they're going to need to be mindful of is um, ensuring that as we move into this new way of managing COVID-19, A, that it works um, and that it does keep our death rate really low, but B, that it doesn't actually further marginalise people who are already marginalised in our society. Because if there's one thing mm. that I think all of us could see as plain as day from COVID-19 was that those deep pockets of poverty and marginalisation actually ankle-tapped um, our ability to, to manage COVID-19 really well. So, you know, there's an opportunity here for a good Labor government to actually address those underlying issues of poverty and marginalisation. That's going to be quite tricky in a situation where um, the unvaccinated are going to be treated differently from the vaccinated. And also um, in the environment where at the end of the last quarter, New Zealand actually posted just under a 5% inflation rate. Now, if that mm. isn't actually reflected in people's wages, um, that's going to be a big hit on people's living standards. And it's also going to be a big hit um, on uh, housing affordability as interest rates um, reflect that situation as well. So those there's tricky times ahead for the government. Yeah, there's that's no a good doubt point. about that. Yeah. OK, so, so, so in an environment where we see inflationary pressures, we've had our biggest uh, city in lockdown for three months. Liam, why isn't National doing better? 
Well, well, National is doing a little bit better than it has in the past, um, but it's got a very 2017 sort of feel to it. And what I mean by that is, is that at the start of 2017, you know, for, for a while the key, key English government had started to look a bit vulnerable, but Labour just couldn't close the deal at that point. And in fact, they were polling worse than National is now. But all that softening was, was there, and it, all it was waiting for was for the right set of circumstances, um, the right change in direction from Labour uh, to, to reap the benefits of that and to take, uh, to take government back. And it, it's, it's very similar at the moment. So National can't quite close the deal with voters. The voters are, are clearly dissatisfied, well, mm. a, a, a proportion of the voters, perhaps a decisive one, uh, are, are, are feeling a little bit dissatisfied with the government. But National needs to close the deal. And, and, and they can't close the deal at the moment. And that's why uh, for every vote that they gain for, uh, from Labour, they're losing part of a vote uh, to, to act. And, uh, you know, looking at the headline numbers of the polls, it, I mean, it was really um, astonishing that David Seymour was so far ahead of Judith Collins in terms of uh, preferred prime minister. So uh, it's, it's one thing, it was one thing for the government to be a bit vulnerable, but the opposition has to actually be in a position to capitalise on it, um, and, and, they, mm. and they're not at the moment. Yeah, you see, I, I know there is always conjecture <laughs> in, at the moment about the, the National Party leadership, and to be honest, I'm loath to dwell on it for too long until we actually see any action on that front. But what is this polling likely to mean for the National leadership, Liam? Well, it's, it's an interesting one because it, the, the more competitive um, National becomes, um, the, the more uh, enticing or the more attractive taking the leadership seems, right? So in a funny way, when the, when the election looks like it might be a write-off, um, the, the leadership of the National Party might not be a very nice thing to have. Um, so in, in some ways it's a bit of a mixed, uh, mixed blessing for Judith Collins to see the polls uh, go up. Mm. Um, at some point um, it may just actually precipitate something that's being held off for the time being. Yeah, one thing that was curious to me in our uh, exclusive numbers there, Sue, was that of previous Labour voters who are unhappy with the government's performance, more are actually choosing ACT than are going to the Greens. But do you think ACT has peaked and plateaued, or could they gain more voter support? Well, look, the complete disarray in the National Party has been the greatest gift to Labour over this period of time, quite frankly, and also it's been a great gift to ACT. Um, because, you know, there has been that, uh, it's, it goes beyond the leadership, it's actually the disunity and the leaking that people can see that's happening within the wider National Caucus. And, and you know, ACT's been the great beneficiary of that. And it's quite interesting, it's a real great political irony actually to watch the leader of the Libertarian Party that uh, is the champion for freedom of speech um, completely clamped down on um, any of his other MPs seeing the light of day with their voices, um, including the, the deputy leader who seems to have disappeared without trace as well. So, you know, a great irony that they've, they've had the sort of level of um, political management and discipline um, that is lacking in the National Party at the moment. And, um, and it, it's interesting because... We don't know a lot about those ACT MPs and their voices just aren't being heard. Liam, what do you think? Has ACT peaked and plateaued? I don't think ACT's going to get much more than they've already got. I mean, you know, I, mean I could be wrong, but it just seems to me that, you know, um, that, that for the reasons that Sue's outlined, um, mm. it's, it's somehow presenting as a, as a moderate um, a, a sort of alternative. Um, I think, you know, um, I, I remember on election night, um, a political journalist was rubbing all their hands uh, in glee 
and all the crazy things that these random act list MPs were going to say and all the stories it was going to generate. And Sue's absolutely right, they've been, uh, they've been tight and disciplined. And, um, and, and look what's happened as a result of that. Um, and, and I would just hope, uh, as a National Party member myself, I just hope that the, the caucus can mm. see this is what happens when you run a tight ship. Well, it is great to have you both on once again. Thank you so much for your time and insights this morning. Sue Maroney and Liam here, and a special congratulations to Liam and his whanau for the new addition in their family this week. Coming up on Q&A, the doctor who caught COVID-19 from his patients and ended up in hospital himself. So I didn't work for about six months because I was still feeling the after effects of the, of the infection itself. So Now he's returned to the front lines to treat COVID in his community. Hokimai, welcome back. Papakura is ground zero for the COVID-19 outbreak. Hundreds of people in the community have tested positive for the virus and doctors at the Papakura Marae Health Clinic are putting in massive hours as they look after their patients. As you'll hear, one of the doctors in Papakura has only just returned to the job after being hospitalised with COVID-19. I spent the afternoon on the front line of the COVID outbreak where all of those theoretical things about the response, inequities, bureaucratic problems and under-vaccinated populations become very real. At Papakura Marae, business as usual means busyness as usual. Car after car is being loaded up to support local whānau, many of whom have COVID-19. And in a region that's ground zero for the Delta outbreak, Dr Jason Tuhoi is the first to admit he's exhausted. Well, it's been tough. It's been really tough here for us at the Marae, um, particularly because we've had so many patients have come back uh, positive with COVID. Um, in the sense that we're generally the first one who makes contact with them to tell them about the positive swabs. So for some of our whānau, you know, they're not expecting to be told that they're COVID positive. And for some of them, it's a real, real shock. It's been tough. We've been working, you know, um, not just in the normal Monday to Friday, but over the weekends as well, getting in contact with whānau because there's so much need. What is it like for people who are isolating at the moment? Yeah, well, it's a lot of our whānau are living in intergenerational homes. It's overcrowded. They don't have the space to be able to isolate safely. You know, they don't have that two or three bathrooms and things. It's just one bathroom for the entire family. We had a whānau, I think there were about 18 within that particular household. So it's hard to be able to manage safely in that space. 18 in the house? 18, yeah. That was one of our largest sort of households and things. Are you seeing a different range of experiences for people who have COVID-19? Tamariki, fortunately, the majority of them have been okay. They've just been the normal cells. They may have had some initial symptoms like fevers and cough, but when I've gone around and see them over subsequent um, visits, they've been actually okay. For our older sort of adults and those who have uh, more medical problems, some of them have been really unwell and short of breath. And then even today, we had, I had a young uh, mama who I found had a positive swab come back from Wednesday and, and spoke to her. And uh, she was quite unwell, short of breath, um, unable to eat and uh, finding it difficult to breathe. And so ended up having to call an ambulance for her to go into hospital to be assessed. Were we prepared to have people isolating at home like this? I don't think so, no. No, it wasn't set up for this particular model, not for the, the needs that we're seeing in our particular community, and those needs are the communities that we're worried about, because um, 
We're living in areas that are overcrowded, there's high levels of deprivation and poverty, you know, and there's just not those supports uh, that are there to be able to manage safely at home. And I think, you know, we've, we've been concerned for a long time and, and still concerned now. Things like getting um, even just oximeters out to whānau, even though they're saying that they're getting there, we were going around and seeing our whānau and they don't have them. And so we're sort of trying to get some so that when our patients do have them, then we can actually take them to them and, and keep in contact. How are you getting oximeters? Well, if you can help with that, we'd be pretty uh, stoked. But we are also... Um, working through our PHO and, uh, and through other means as well. The health clinic attached to the Papakura Marae has dozens of COVID-positive patients, but since isolating patients can't go to the Marae... How many house visits you got to do today? I think 12. The Marae goes to them instead. 12? Yes. you got to do this 12 times? Yeah. So it's a long day now. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to be like a supermodel getting changed and unchanged yeah. so many times. <laughs> I just don't have the hair to go with it. <laughs> Along with the box of Kai, Dr Martiri Harwood has other vital cargo. So this is an oximeter um, and these were kindly donated by another Māori provider when they saw that we were short of them in Papakura. They're meant to be sent out by public health, but many people have told us they're waiting five, seven days to receive them. Um, tested positive yesterday morning. Nikita Simpson is in a multi-generational home. Pop your finger in. And you'll see, can you see that little red thing going up and down? Yeah. Yeah. So that's saying your oxygen sats are 98%, yeah. which is perfect. Okay. So if it gets under 95%, they should have given you a list of phone numbers. Yeah, they have. Perfect. And they, so if it gets under 95, you ring those numbers straight away. Okay. And it might be that you need to go to hospital when that happens. Yeah. The Papakura doctors are already dealing with more than 60 positive patients in their small clinic. The majority is self-isolating at home. Yeah, I don't feel that we were set up in time. We knew this would happen when Delta came. We knew it was a lot more infectious and that um, once it got into homes, the family would be infected um, because it was just so highly infectious. Um, and so months ago we did say we need to look at setting up primary care to be able to cope with it because the MIQs will become filled very, very quickly. Um, so not, not set up well, but many of us in primary care have just stepped up and said, We'll do it, we'll get on and keep our whānau safe until it is set up properly. Of all the positive cases in Papakura, Dr Martiri Harwood says very few are vaccinated. It's really clear. Vaccination makes a massive difference in the likelihood someone will contract or spread the virus. They said I couldn't be vaccinated unless I got tested. Okay. And that's when I... Lucky I did, because that's when I got positive. Yeah. Many patients have only sought vaccinations once they started showing symptoms for the virus. But by then, of course, it's too late. Even when you have the COVID infection, you're still at, at risk for getting it again. Yeah. Because the antibodies aren't high enough to fight you at getting another infection. So four weeks after you've recovered from this, we're going to give you a call and arrange for you to come in and get your vaccination as well. Yeah. Is that all right? Yeah, that's okay. all good. Cool. While Dr Martiri Harwood strips off one set of PPE and prepares to repeat the process, back at Papakura Marae, Dr Jason Tuhoi is holding down the clinic. You personally have 
pretty harrowing experience with the virus. C can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I was a GP working in Tokoroa uh, at, at the time and uh, happy managing uh, the COVID positive patients who were there uh, in Tokoroa and then I became unwell uh, with it at the same time. So um, it was a hard time in the fact that I was alone. So my whanau were here in Auckland with my wife. We had made that decision to to um, be separate because of the because of how with COVID, uh, and then ended up uh, hospitalised, and then ended up with um, pneumonia, and it was a bad time really, and physically, but also emotionally, and awaiuane being so separate from Fano, so, and then ended up in uh, MIQ for um, for the remainder of my uh, illness and then took uh, time off work. So I didn't work for about six months because I was still feeling the after effects of the, of the infection itself. So it wasn't a, a very good time for me at all for our whanau. And we've only just recently started talking about our, our experiences and the hope that it allows our whanau to share you know, what we've been through. From someone who has had COVID-19, who is visiting patients with COVID-19, what is your message to anyone wondering about vaccinations? Yeah, I think the biggest thing really um, that I would um, say for that is that for our whanau to, to consider vaccination and consider it seriously. It's such a, uh, an important aspect in regards to how we're going to be managing this pandemic. And, um, you know, that's one of the things that I've come out and said that as well. Even though I was unwell with the virus, I still made that conscious decision to be vaccinated because I knew that it would give not only myself protection, but protection for my whanau. Because we're living in an intergenerational home as well. And so it's important that you know we're able to look after our young ones who can't be, and all of our tamariki are, are under the age of 12, so they cannot be vaccinated. So, um, And then the other thing that it's important, I think, for whanau right now is to really consider is the whanau plan, having a plan in place when COVID comes, because COVID will be coming well, for a lot of our whanau, and it's important to have that plan in place. So that's things like ensuring that you've you've um, got enough uh, support for those who are um, those who can come in and give you that extra support. Making sure that you have enough of your regular medications. Making sure that you have enough. Um, your, your, your actual conditions are stable, making sure that you have those numbers that you need to contact in case you need any additional help, and all those sorts of things that um, help to try and uh, allay some of the issues that come with being COVID positive and isolating at home. This is maybe a difficult question, but as someone on the front line, have Māori been let down by the COVID-19 response? Yeah, of course, and I think that's been said time and time again, not only from my colleague who works here, from, from Dr. Marty de Harwood, but also from a lot of our other colleagues who are part of Te Ropu Ruta. It's something that we've said that has not only just been a part of the COVID-19 pandemic, but across a number of issues over the over the years. So it's, it's this is just highlights another aspect of that, and you know we're in this now and. Kakaharatato, really. Ngengekwe. Aye. Tino, Engari, Mehari Tonu. It is Dr. Jason Tuhoi. I said, You're tired. Hey, you're tired. And he said, Yeah, really tired, but we just keep going.
His colleague, Dr. Matiri Harwood, says for quite a lot of people, home isolation is working really well, and it's actually better for them to be with Fano than at an MIQ facility. And so, you know, a spokesperson for the Northern Regional Health says they believe in a majority of cases, people isolating at home with COVID-19 are given pulse oximeters in a timely way, but they acknowledge some delays and say they're trying to improve their processes. Kua mutu. That is Q&A for this week. Thank you for watching. Hey, Teera Wiki. We will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.